Hello, this is the podcast of Reading Muslims, a project at the Institute of Islamic Studies at the University of Toronto. My name is Anvar Iman, and I'm your host today. Joining me on today's session is Professor Haytham Bahura, Professor of Comparative Literature and Near and Middle Eastern Civilizations at the University of Toronto. Professor Bahura focuses on modern Arabic literature and visual culture. His research explores the relationship between aesthetics and politics, the emergence and transformations of new genres and styles in modern Arabic prose and poetry, and the intersections of textual, material, and visual forms in cultural production. He's also a core member of our Reading Practices Hub at the Reading Muslims Project. Welcome, Professor Bahura. Well, we're really excited to have you. You bring to this project a very specific focus on literary practices, literary genres, and and, and practices of reading, particularly as we think about the modern period. And um, as someone who studies the modern period, you offer us an opportunity to think with a long historical trajectory as we also have parallel conversations with our medieval studies colleagues. And so my first question for you today on this podcast is, it's really about one of the core presumptions around reading Muslims. The project presumes to a certain degree that we can meaningfully talk about Islamic or Islamic texts. Can you tell us a bit about how you think about a descriptor like Islamic when describing a text or a literary tradition? What work is that adjective doing? Right. Yeah. Thank you for for the question, and thank you for um, having me here. Uh, that's a that's a bit of a complicated question, uh, I think, because the term Islamic as a descriptor and as an adjective is not necessarily just a given. It's a discursive construction. Um, what I mean by that is that its usage is related to the formation of structures of knowledge and to the production of knowledge itself, whether in the Western Academy, which organizes its understandings of all sorts of social, political, and cultural questions related to Muslims around this rubric of the uh, Islamic or within parts of the Islamic world. And where there's a a different tradition of talking about what is Islamic. Um, My research focuses on modern Arabic literature, largely fictional texts, novels, short stories, poetry. And when we talk about textuality and texts in the modern period, we're we're talking about the formation of new genres and new modes of writing and reading uh, that that correspond to, I would say, to shifts, historical shifts that shape the emergence of the modern world through structures such as colonialism and capitalism, for example, which had profound a profound impact on questions of reading and writing and education. Um, this is sort of an interesting question about how we transition from the pre-modern to the modern and how do we document that transition from the pre-modern to the modern? What do we pay attention to? And if we can talk about the past as being in the Middle East as being Islamic, um, why is it that today, and I think this is one of the questions that we're interested in, is why is it that today, you know, we don't refer to modern Arabic literature uh, through the category of of the Islamic. So um, one of the interesting things that's happened in my field in, I'd say, the past 15 years or so, and it's sort of a, a new direction in research, is that people have gone back to that transition into modernity, right? And to try to understand how forms that had been literary forms that had been previously associated with the pre-modern, um, and these are forms like in Arabic, for example, the maqama, which is a picaresque uh, fictional form, the longest uh, form of prose narrative in Arabic. How does that form, in a sense, sort of end in the 19th century and then get transitioned into what we call today that modern Arabic novel? So, for example, if you pick up a modern Arabic novel today, what you're reading seems very globalized, right? It 
reads like a novel and it's familiar. But that wasn't always the case um, that the novel, you know, signified the novel. It was something very different in the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th century. And I think what a lot of scholars today are interested in is, you know, um, contesting a certain narrative, which was that there was a clean break between the modern and the pre-modern, and instead uh, focusing on these moments of transition, at least aesthetically, wherein forms that are associated with the Islamic period or Islamic civilization or whatever whatever term we associate with the pre-modern are transitioning into new forms. Um, and there are texts, specific texts, for example, that, that are useful for us when we look at the question of form and how it, quote unquote, becomes uh, modern, at least in literature. Um, I would just say also, you know, the term Islamicate, for example, um, to refer to sort of the cultural artifacts of the Islamic world. This is Marshall Hodgson's term, I believe, which was meant to distinguish the cultural effects of Islamic civilization that are taken up by non-Muslims from the purely religious. Um, and the term Islamicate has been criticized of late, most notably in Shah Ahmed's um, What is Islam, um, wherein he, he sort of argues that this distinction is essentially meaningless between the Islamicate and the Islamic, and that whether or not an actor, and this is, I think, his, his, his quote, whether an actor is Muslim or not is irrelevant to whether the act or product of the act is Islamic, um, and, and, end quote. And I, I think the question of what label we affix to texts, and I, I tend to agree with him on that um, assertion, but I but in my view, for at least my own work, the question of what label we affix to text is less important than what the texts are actually doing in a specific time and place. At the same time, this question of terminology persists. And I think that that question of what is Islamic persists so much because the formation of the disciplinary study of the Islamic world is rooted so much in European discourses about Islam itself. So historically, the study in the West of Islamic civilizations, Islamic art, Islamic law is rooted in a particular way of seeing the Islamic Islamic world and in, in secular epistemologies that seek to classify and other Muslims and Islam. So much of the debate is responsive and reacting to practices of scholarship and discourses of knowledge that have ordered the terms that we use to classify the texts that are emanating from this impossibly broad epistemological category called the Islamic world. So on some level, I think it's a useful term to help us um, think about a region, a civilization, a context. But on, an, on another level, I think, depending on what your what the text is doing in a particular time and space, it might not be a relevant appellation to a particular text either. Well, on that on that note, I'd like to take you to the, my next question, because one of the key features of what we want to explore in reading Muslims is the political salience of text or textuality in the way that it's deployed across different times. And you and I have had the opportunity to talk about the way the Islamic is or isn't taken up in the late 19th and early 20th century around this period called the Nahda and what the Nahda signaled politically around this label of Islamic or Islamicate in the context of this sort of this period of modernization. I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about what the Nahda was, what it means or what it meant, what it means to a scholar like you and what that period signals politically for the way these labels uh, signal different uses of these texts or their significance. Yeah. Um, so for, for very broadly speaking, the Nahda was a kind of, and this is where a lot of the focus of many modern Arabic literary scholars uh, has gone to right now to sort of understand how modern Arabic literary practices were made. It was a kind of 19th to early 20th century uh, reform movement that sought to, for lack of a better word, modernize the Arab Islamic tradition. And part of this, 
part of this uh, sort of modernization meant reforming, for example, literary texts, practices of writing. Um, there were sort of new avenues of publication uh, and all sorts of um, sort of reform efforts within the Arab Islamic world. And this it was also at the level of sort of religion itself, right, where um, uh, religious scholars themselves sought to, quote unquote, modernize the you know, Islamic law or Islamic tradition. So one of the interesting things is that for much of the 20th century, the narrative that was put forward about the Nahda was that it was this, it was a kind of uncritical narrative that looked at the Nahda as well. This was a modernizing effort to bring the Arab Islamic world into the into modernity, in a sense, to mimic and replicate the structures of European thought. Uh, and even in, in terms of literature, this would have been, for example, literary forms like the novel, the short story, that the Arabic speaking world was lacking in these things. And in order to become modern, it had to adopt them. And so this was a broad social transformation spearheaded by the you know, Arabic speaking world's uh, cultural elites. That is these uh, figures who had traveled to Europe, had traveled to Paris and come back and said, wow, we've fallen behind uh, and we need to uh, adopt European manners and European aesthetics and European ways in order to be able to compete once again. Um, now, this narrative of, you know, a kind of civilization that had been in decline and that was being awakened, uh, because nah, that literally means awakening um, through imitating European norms. I think this narrative has now is now being um, debunked or dismantled a little bit, because what we're seeing is there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any kind of clean break with the past that that is assumed to have been the case, at least according to a lot of literary critics and cultural critics in the Arab world who faithfully observed this narrative. Instead, what we are now paying attention to or closer attention to as, as literary scholars um, or people interested in in how, for example, the modern Arabic novel or the modern short story formed was, was this idea that, in fact, a lot of the forms themselves, you know, were arrived at with interesting uh, sort of relationships to prior form. And there are certain scholars who are working on this questions of a critique of the secular, a critique, a kind of narrative of a clean break that Arab writers just abandoned their past traditions and then embraced the, the European, European translation. And uh, one particular novel that people often, or that has been really useful in terms of uh, understanding this shift is a Lebanese writer named Ahmed Fadis Shadia called Leg Over Leg. And uh, this novel is a kind of dizzyingly difficult uh, novel to even talk about because it really marks this transition from, you know, medieval Arabic literature from the Islamic period to uh, the modern world. And, it, and he uses a lot of the kinds of aesthetic tropes of classical forms, of the maqama, of poetry, of allusion. Um, but at the same time, it's clear that he's marking a kind of transition into the modern uh, world. It's almost like the Arabic Don Quixote in a way. And so um, I think that that's what's sort of exciting about what is happening in the field right now is that there are really interesting um, examinations of 19th century and even early 20th century texts, literatures that are uh, questioning the narrative that, you know, Arab writers just sort of unthinkingly adopted European forms without paying any attention to their own traditions. 
That's fantastic. Thank you very much for that. I'm wondering if we could turn our attention to modern modes of reading. As we think about reading practices, which is the hub that you help lead, is um, one thing that we're encountering is, of course, the turn to the digital text. In earlier conversations, we've talked about sort of Shamila as a collection of digital texts of uh, medieval Arabic traditions and medieval Arabic sources. I'm wondering if in your work and in the context that you work in, the the turn to the digital is a significant site of textual development that requires new practices. And if not the digital, what would be the more innovative site for you in the, in the context of comparative literature? I mean, it's an interesting question because it, it sort of gets to um, what a text is, right? I mean, what is a text? Um, and when we talk about a text becoming digital, um, what kinds of transformations does that produce in terms of readers, in terms of, you know, your cognitive access to it, in terms of democratizing um, access to, say, things like manuscripts and um, things that had been previously located in archive that required one to travel thousands of miles to get or to have access to. So in that sense, there's this, the, you know, at least for academics, it's been really exciting to see that they can access manuscripts and digital archives very easily. And I know for in my case, for example, there are texts that, that are just difficult to get because they're early 20th century or late 19th century texts, they're out of print. Uh, and so the, the fact that they're now accessible, many of them are accessible, certainly not all of them, but many of them are accessible, um, makes scholarship a lot easier. But I guess, I mean, in terms of what a text is, um, it, it's an interesting question because I think the digital also allows us to reconceptualize, um, you know, what what we mean by accessing a text or if a text has to be written even. Um, because you know, what if a text is heard rather than read? And what if it's simply part of an oral tradition, for example, and so you just listen to it, um, or it's memorized and recited for an audience to appreciate? Um, and obviously, if we're speaking of context where prayer or poetry is recited, the question of textuality changes dramatically because we start to pay closer attention to issues such as rhetoric, speech, sound, performance. Um, and this strikes me as being particularly important for traditions um, like the Islamic that place such a strong emphasis on recitation, memory, lyricism, um, or orality and delivery. So, you know, I think the digital age opens up a lot of possibilities in terms of hearing, in terms of, of uh, access, in terms of democratizing uh, what we see, uh, what we hear. Um, and that's what's really exciting about it. Um, at the same time, I'm not so sure about you know, how the popular access or the popularization of, of books in terms of people's cognitive understanding of a text on an iPad or, or on a on an e-reader or something, how that shifts our relationship to knowledge and to the text itself. And that's something, you know, I I haven't really um, made up my mind about because I see the fact that so many people now have access to things, but they're reading them in very fragmented ways. And that sort of fragmented uh, ways of reading texts might also pose other problems too. Actually, it's it's uh, it's very perceptive because even I find myself when I'm on, a, on my Kindle or iPad, there's a sense of fragmentation in the text that I I don't experience when I have something in in uh, in in its physical format in my hand. So I actually appreciate that. 
I want to ask you, I just have a couple more questions I want to ask you, but one of them really is about as a project for reading Muslims. Uh, on the one hand, when we think about texts and textuality, there's a sense in which we've been studying texts in the academy for quite a long time. They've been central to so much of what makes up Islamic studies, most certainly, if we trace it back to the German uh, university tradition. But at the same time, our historical moment's quite fascinating, right? We're, we're, uh, we're 20 years, we're, we're almost over two decades after 9-11, we're living in a context around uh, anti-racism. We're thinking about in the Canadian context, post-TRC, where we have very oral traditions that are also being integrated into the way we think about uh, university and curriculum. Intellectually, we also have this increasing attention to the critique of secularism as part of our larger conversation around Islamic studies, particularly coming out of anthro. So thinking about all these more recent developments and say in the last 20 years, both in the academy and politically around us. What is it that's innovative to you that brings, that makes you excited about reading Muslims? Hmm. Um, so I, I think for me, it's like th this project is exciting because it presents possibilities in terms of thinking about how we historicize and understand the production of texts, how texts migrate and are taken up in different contexts. I think this is more related to what you're saying, like how a text mediates broader social and political transformations, um, giving us into insight into larger questions such as colonialism, uh, secularism, aesthetics and meaning. Um, you know, in my own field, the question of how a literary text performs meaning, that is how the form of a text is itself historical, um, emerging, which, you know, meaning that it emerges from a certain set of conditions and encodes a set of concerns, problems or conflicts, um, allows us, I think, to rethink the script of modernity that we often take for granted. I think for scholars of, of literature in particular, uncovering aspects of literary form that has eluded critics in the past for whatever reasons allows us to retell the story of cultural formation um, and cultural conflict. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking in particular of an Arab writer who I work on, an Iraqi writer I work on from the 1920s. And his fiction is, is a bit strange. Um, he's often cited as Iraq's first novelist, having produced a strange novel type book um, in the late 1920s. He was the son of one of Baghdad's most important imams um, who preached at the Haider Khana Mosque in, in Baghdad. His work ran Changes from in the beginning of his writing career, romance tales that he uses as a vehicle for social critique, to by the end of his life, a profound attachment to the fiction of Tolstoy and an attempt to reproduce a similar realist aesthetic in Arabic. So in the span of 10 years, his writing would shift dramatically. And so I think you know one of the things that this is interesting about this project is it allows us to ask certain questions, like how do we make sense of the formation of an aesthetic such as realism that is at once local and global, um, that incorporates Russian literary literature into Arabic through translation um, that is conscious of a burgeoning anti-colonial uh, movement, global movement that is mediated, as in the case with this writer, through India, where he's first exposed to Marxism, where he promotes, which he promotes in reading groups at the mosque that his father's an imam in, right? Um, so why does he begin with romance novels, which he later disavows, insulting the quality of his own writing? Um, and so, I mean, all of this, I'm just using that as an example to point to how the formation of aesthetic form uh, was produced through all of these social processes and um, 
And, you know, his fiction is interrupted, labored, struggling to arrive at a coherent kind of form of its own. And so what excites me about reading this kind of fiction is understanding these texts as products of these historical convergences. And I think, if anything, what reading Muslims can do is give us this space through which we can ask these questions about how a text mediates all sorts of broad meaning and meanings um, that gives us a kind of different understanding and, and a more specific understanding of history, in, in essence, because that's what a text is, in a sense. It encodes a historical transformation, and that's what reading text allows us to do. That is a wonderful way to end our podcast with you. And so I want to thank you for your contributions, for your insights on these questions. This has been Haitham Bahura, Professor of Comparative Literature and Near and Middle Eastern Civilization, speaking to us at the Reading Muslims podcast. Uh, Professor Bahura, thank you so much for your time and for your thoughts for, the, for today. It was my pleasure. Thank you. 